All right, guys. Well, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in John 3, John chapter 3. And right away, that might make you say, wait a minute, an Easter message from John 3? What's he doing? Because that's exactly how I felt when I was preparing this. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And why are we talking about that on Easter? That's like the wrong end of the gospel. You're supposed to be at the end of the gospel on Easter Sunday. But the reason for this is I want to take today and do, I want to try to answer a question of what is the point of, of this? Why do we have this gruesome death on a cross and why do we have this resurrection from a grave and what, what's, why? What's the point? That's what I want to try to address today. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for today. Lord, I pray above all else that this message does what you want it to do, and it is what you want it to be. I ask for your your words, Lord, your help today, and your work on all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. title of my message is, Somebody's Perfect. How often do we say, well, nobody's perfect? That's just kind of universal. You hear that all the time on TV, movies, whatever casual conversation, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Well, that's a problem because God is perfect and he requires perfection. And if we're not perfect, then there's a problem. And somebody's going to have to fix that problem. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, before I get there, let me do a little intro. We call today Easter Sunday or Resurrection Day or Resurrection Sunday. There's a couple of ideas of where did we get this term Easter from. I did a little research on it. I had always heard, and it was easy enough to find, um, a stora or a store or is the Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring and fertility. And it, many argue that that's where we get Easter from. Is a store, the the Anglo-Saxon referring to usually typically Northern Europe. Heritage, a lot of our American heritage coming from those uh, English and German um, heritage, saying that uh, you know that was a that was kind of an old European goddess of fertility, and that's where we get Easter from, and hence the rabbits and the eggs, all signs of fertility and, re- and reproduction for, for springtime. There is another thought that um, Easter may, and it's interesting that there's no universally agreed upon origin of, of Easter, the term. I kind of I was a little surprised by that. But there's another school of thought that says Easter comes from the Latin phrase in albus, plural of alba, alba being dawn, and that it was an early Christian reference to the Easter week, being multiple dawns, multiple days. And that was re- referred to the German eostarum, which is the the German translation of the Latin for multiple days, and Eostarum is very similar to Easter. And that that was the origin of it. And for for citation's sake, uh, I I was looking at Smithsonian's uh, website and also Britannica, if you remember the Encyclopedia Britannica. Those of us old enough to remember encyclopedias in going to the library and using the encyclopedia, um, 
Those are the sources that I was looking at online. Very interesting articles. Don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but I was just thought it was really interesting. There are different theories on where we got the term Easter from. One of them is an actual Christian reference. One of them is uh, borrowed from a pagan uh, heritage. Either way, the focus of today is not, and I, I'm not anti, uh, we're, we, we host family and, uh, and the kids hunt Easter eggs at our house. I'm not anti um, eggs or rabbits or anything like that. But the whole point of today is the, the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. That's the point of today. In John 3, John 3, 16, this is probably a verse you're familiar with. I would, I would suggest it's probably the most quoted Bible verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We hear that all the time. I've heard it enough that I can take it for granted if I'm not careful. You just read through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know. That verse says some huge, has huge implications. First of all, it says there is a God. First of all, it also says that we are naturally separated from him. Because if he had to give his own son for us to not perish, then there's something wrong with us to start with. Our natural state is to perish. Our natural destiny is to perish, and he had to do something about that. Otherwise, we would have perished. And that brings us to an inevitable conclusion that we all already know that we are not perfect. We say that all the time, right? No, nobody's perfect. Yeah, we're not perfect. And we say that as human beings, it kind of reassures us that, well, all of us, we all kind of understand and accept each other that we're not perfect. And that's great, but we have to answer to a perfect God. And it might make us feel good one, one along with, each, you know, one-on-one with each other or in a group, hey, we all, well, nobody's perfect. But if we have to answer to a perfect God, then there's a gap there, and we, and we're, we need something to bridge that gap. Because if we're standing before a perfect God and we say, well, hey, I'm, I'm better than this other person over here, why should he care? Who, who promised us that God grades on a curve? He, you remember back in school, like, hey, I will just, we'll, we'll grade on a curve. So, you know, the person with the highest uh, score, that's an A. And then, you know, maybe you would have had a B, but now you have an A because you were close to that other person. God never said he would do that. Why would a perfect God ever ever need to do that. He, did, he doesn't do that. He doesn't grade on a curve. He did something a whole lot better than that. A whole lot more gracious than any, than any uh, changing the standards. I want to go to the beginning of John 3. We know John 3.16, but it's, it's, I think it's so much cooler when you put it into context. So it's right in the middle of the conversation he has with Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. But he's, he recognizes that Jesus is doing miracles, and he says, okay. He comes to him at night and talks to him and says, what, what's going on here? I see you're doing miracles. Tell, tell me. What, what, tell me more. So John 3, starting in verse 1, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again, and I'm going to approach this in somewhat of a kind of philosophical overview. Just trying to understand these concepts in very simple terms. I know when we, kind of like Eddie was just saying, you know, when we, sometimes we overcomplicate it. Here, I've got all these verses to, to, to work through and debate through, and sometimes we just need to be able to explain things real simple. If we need to be born again, and, that, and we have to be born again to see the kingdom of God, that means we're not born okay the first time. That means the first time that we're, our natural state is imperfect, is flawed, and is not going to reach heaven in and of itself. Start off that way. Cut off there for a second. We start off that way. We start in a state of not going to heaven, and that's a problem because the alternative is hell, and we don't want that. So what are we going to do? Well, first off, we recognize God is perfect, and we have to understand that. Because if we just say, okay, well, we're not perfect, then eh, what's the big deal? We're all not perfect. But as soon as we realize that there is a creator, and the more we look at this universe, and the more complicated we realize it is, and the more amazing it is, that there was a supreme being that made all this. I, could, I, I don't have the time to go into all the problems that come up when you try to explain the universe creating itself, but it doesn't work out well. There, was, there is a being that created this universe. And, and the only way we can understand a being like that is to understand that being is infinite. And stick with me here. I don't want to get too too philosophical. I just want, but I want to cover some basic questions that are. If you're trying to explain this to somebody who's never heard this before, how are you going? How are you going to do it? How are you going to answer their questions? We see this incredibly complex universe. We know there's more to us than just matter and energy. We have thoughts, and we have de- we have a natural desire to want to understand life beyond death. We have all these things. We understand. It's not, it's not all that difficult to realize that there is a, an infinite God, and it would have to be infinite to create all that we, that we see. And the moment you have an infinite being, any part of that being, stick with me here for math, if you have infinity, any part of that inf- infinity is also infinite. The moment you have an infinite God, if any part of him were not perfect, that imperfection would, be, would annihilate everything. It would, be, it would be infinite flawed, infinite dark, evil, whatever you want to call it. But the moment that infinite being is not perfect, that being would annihilate everything. That imperfection would destroy everything. And we're here. We're not destroyed. We're, we exist. In the moment you have an infinite being, that infinite being has to be perfect. And that poses a problem. How do we, as flawed, imperfect creatures ever begin to connect or bridge the gap between us and him. We wouldn't know perfection if it walked up to us. (laughs) We wouldn't know perfection if we saw it. He has to explain to us what perfection is because, hey, he did come in physical form, and how'd that turn out when he came to earth? 
We're celebrating his resurrection because he died on a cross. Because people, he chose to do that. But there was a whole crowd shouting, encountered perfection and said, destroy it. And I know we all like to think I, we, I would never be part of that crowd, but come on. Nobody stood up and defended Jesus at his trial. That's the most astonishing thing. Perfection showed up. And human beings rallied against it. And nobody and he stood alone. Nobody nobody defended him at his trial and they said, Hey, let's kill him because we can't stand perfection. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't know it if it walked up to us. How do other religions approach this question? Because we're not the only ones that realize there's a that there is a supreme being out there. Most other religions, and I have heard it quoted several times, somewhere over 4,000 world religions, and I am going to tell you I am not an expert in all, all 4,000 religions by any means. But typically, other religions approach it as you need to do things. You perform a certain way. Here's a certain code. Here's a certain set of rules. Here's a certain thing you do to try to please that being. Or they have a pan- pantheon, a whole group of beings that are flawed, and that has its own problems, because how can you explain? How could that ever work? Uh, again, back to that question of as soon as you have an infinite being, you ha- you ha- that being has to be perfect. But there's a problem with all of that. Anytime you have, okay, okay, flawed human being, you need to follow this certain guideline and you'll become perfect. Or maybe it's a, a, a religion that does not have a God at all, just has human beings evolving or progressing down a path to enlightenment. There's plenty of that too. But you still have flawed human beings somehow achieving perfection. You have imperfection somehow achieving perfection. That doesn't make any sense. That 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 can't be. That can't. You can't have. You can't have at one point be okay. I'm well. I'm flawed and I'm not perfect, but I'm going to somehow become perfect. We we wouldn't even know how to do that or where to begin. We wouldn't know what that perfection even looked like. Christianity answers this question by set by. Yes, there is a supreme being. He told us what perfection was. He gave us the law. He gave us the scriptures. He gave us the prophets. He told us what perfection looks like. So that we would understand we can't live up to it. And then what did he do about it? He lived the perfect life. Died for our sins. And resurrected and said, here, I'll give you this perfection. Because you can't do it on your own. You can't achieve it. I'll do it for you. That's the only thing that makes sense. If there's a if there's an imperfect group and a perfect being, there's only one way that gap's going to get bridged. And that's the perfect being doing it on himself, saying, "I'll do this, and then I'll give it to you. I'll co- I'll reach out to you and connect with you." That's that's the only thing that makes sense. How did he do that? Second Corinthians five twenty one sums it up. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <clears throat> What's he saying there? Perfect being took on our flaws, our imperfection, and gave us his 
when it's the righteousness of God, that is, you're doing things the right way according to God. Everybody's got their idea of what the right way is, but this is the right way, the way God says it is. See, I'll trade you. I'll take on your, I'll take on your imperfection and die and resurrect, and I'll give you my perfect standing with God. And you can be connected to that perfect being again. That is amazing, and that's the only thing that makes sense of how flawed people could know a perfect God. 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ has indeed, be ra- has indeed been raised from the dead, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in all Adam died, uh, excuse me, for as in Adam all died, so in Christ all are made alive. We all inherit that imperfection all the way from the first person, Adam. And then Jesus comes along and says, now you can inherit resurrection from me. I'll fix what, what, ha- what went wrong there. There are churches and voices in, in American Christianity that say, well, why do we still have these gory death scenes on a cross? Can't we just move past that? Can't we just can't we just have nice ideas and nice thoughts and get away from this death? And no, we can't. We cannot move past. I'm glad to say Christ is not still on the cross. I always love our cross here because it's empty. It reminds us of his death, but also reminds us of his victory because he didn't stay there and he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again. And Scripture tells us that because of him raising from the dead, that's our promise too. And if he didn't raise from the dead, then we don't have any hope either. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That entire chapter, you read it in context, it explains all of that. Because he took on that for, for us, and now he gives us trade. How about that? Here, I'll trade you perishing, and I'll give you eternal life. And all you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is believe and accept it. And yes, that belief is going to transform you and it's going to change your actions. But the key part being that you believe it and accept it. So I'm going to finish off John chapter 3 here. And if the worship team um, wants to get ready, as as uh, any good sermon, I have no idea what time it is. So... <laughs> I like it that way. But if you guys want to you guys want to be ready, I'm going to finish up here. I'm going to finish up with John chapter 3. And I want to go back to I want to read John 3:16 in context. I think it has its full effect when you do that. I'm going to start in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. When Jesus refers to the son of man, he's referring to himself. That was his one of the prophetic terms for him back in the Old Testament. Because how do you comprehend part of the Trinity of God coming down in human form? That's a, lot, that's a mouthful to try to explain. So he, just, he sums it up with Son of Man. Uh, no one has gone into heaven. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, no one had gone to heaven. The righteous, and the reason they were righteous, is because they had faith that God was going to provide a sacrifice. Even if they were following the law, their faith was in God providing a sacrifice they stayed in a place called paradise or Abraham's bosom or there's a couple of different terms. But it was, they could actually see hell from where they were. 
but they, but they they were not suffering like hell. And Jesus came, part of his resurrection was to take them to heaven, and now we get to go to heaven. But no one had done that before Christ. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Isn't that exactly, doesn't that make sense? The perfect being says, you want to come where I am, I'm going to have to show you how to get there. <laughs> You're not going to get there on your own. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It's a reference to where the children of Israel had suffered poisonous snake bites, and they made an image of a serpent and held it up. And the people who looked on it, it didn't have any magical power or anything, but the act of faith of looking at that, essentially dying for them, saved them. And it was a symbol of Jesus on the cross, looking at him in faith saves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And that's the choice today. And I, and I, as far as I know, we're all, as I, as I say, we're all family here. I, I think we all know. I'm hoping that this helps you communicate to others. But if anybody has any doubts, needs prayer, anything, I would be happy to pray with you, be happy to talk with you now or later or, or whatever. But this is this is the message we've been given. This is the reality of, yeah, we can't get there on our own. But God loved us so much, he did something about it. And what he did was painful, and it was gruesome, and it was ugly. And then there's that victorious resurrection that gives us hope if this life is all there is that's that's pretty discouraging but we have that hope of heaven of being with God chapter 3 goes on and says this is the verdict light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I'd sum that up by saying, when you realize that God sees everything you do, you know you need some help. <laughs> you know you need a Savior. An honest look at our deeds and, and realizing His light shines on all that, He sees it all, is like, oh, oh I need, I need help. And he did it. He took on our sin on the cross. He gives us eternal life through his resurrection. And that is the only way flawed human beings could, could get to know a perfect being. Now I'm going to say a word of prayer and then let's worship the Lord. And always, and it may not even be in response to this message, but if you need any prayer for anything, we're a praying church. We'd love to pray with you. Lord, thank you so much. What an incredible, incredible thing you have done 
you as a perfect being would even love or even care about flawed beings like us, but to love us so much that you would suffer what we deserve and give us what we don't deserve. Pleasure of knowing you, Lord. Lord, I just would just look at this and say, Lord, why would you do this? And the answer is that you love us. Just that simple. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing, amazing thing you've done, Lord. Lord, we celebrate and we worship you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. us so much he did what it took to reconnect with us so we could know him and he did it in such a way where there's no doubt of his love no one willing to suffer and die for you like that that's love he loves you he loves each and every one of you so much and he offers all he asks is that you believe and accept him and that'll change you. Yeah, that'll change our, that changes our actions. And we grow and we, all, all of that. Yes. We repent of things and we do. Yes. But it starts with just that willingness to believe that he loves you and he, he rescued you from perishing. Let's close in prayer and let's then be dismissed. Lord, thank you again for the awesome gift of your love. You loved us that much. Help us to never doubt that. Help us to walk out of here secure in our salvation, knowing you. Help us to share that with others. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.